The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she be- he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, pray with me as we consider God's word. Father, thank you for this picture, this small picture of a way you always kept your people at the center of your heart and always working and willing to deliver them. And I pray now as we consider this and we consider what it teaches us about ourselves and about your character, we don't just want to intellectually acknowledge this lesson. We need your Holy Spirit to come and make our hearts very soft so that this what you have to teach us gets inside of us and begins to transform us. So be with us now. In your name we pray, amen. I've never preached over helicopters before. This is gonna be fun. But um, two questions from this text that we're gonna consider today that all of us ask, all of us are asking all the time. Uh, Maybe you use different words, but you are feeling these questions all the time. The two questions are this, am I going to be okay and what do I do? Am I going to be okay and what do I do? These two questions sitting underneath those questions, all, uh, most of our anger, most of the fear we experience, most, most of the anxiety that we experience are embedded and meshed with the fact that we're asking those questions all the time, right? We're angry when someone threatens our plans for how we thought our life was gonna go and we don't feel like we're gonna be okay because they got in the way or because they got out of the way, right? Fearful, we're fearful that things might not change. Am I going to be okay if things don't change? We might be fearful that things are fixing to change or going to change, right? Am I gonna be okay? Anxious, anxious about what we're supposed to do in order to be okay. We're asking these questions of ourselves, of God, all the time. Am I going to be okay? And I'm talking about in the broadest and the most acute sense, what do I do? Are you gonna be okay if the situation doesn't change? 
Are you afraid of what's going to happen? Are you afraid of what's gonna happen if you try to do the right thing or don't do the right thing, right? So those are the two questions we're gonna look at. And those are the two questions that I think this verse, this story actually gives us really clear answers to. So the first one is this, what, or the first question is this, am I going to be okay? Are we gonna be okay if it rains during the worship service, right? Here's what this verse, this story teaches us. God is at work. God is at work. If I get shocked by the sound system, he's still sovereign. He didn't forget, right? We're gonna be okay. But this is really it. Am I going to be okay when you ask yourself that question, when you're in the mystery of just daily and weekly life, of your job, of parenting, of being alone, whatever it is, am I going to be okay? This is what God has given you. I'm at work. When you read, especially Old Testament narrative, one of the first things you need to ask yourself is, who is the original audience and why did they need to hear this story? Because the story of Exodus is the defining story of the nation of Israel. It was their Easter story. It was the story that set at the center of their identity that taught them about who God was and what he was doing and what his relationship with them is like. So why did Moses record this story of a mother and a daughter delivering and protecting a Hebrew baby and deliver it to Israel. Well, here's what Israel was at this moment when they received this story for the first time. They were on the edge of the promised land. They had been through 400 years of slavery. They had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. If you wanna talk about a people group that's worried about whether or not they're gonna be okay, if they're a people group that's existentially haunted by that question, it's Old Testament Israel at this moment. Are we going to be okay? Is it really going to work out? And into that context, Moses says, I wanna tell you a story. Because the story of Israel is from slavery to the desert. And the story is written to address the question, are we gonna be okay? And here's the application of the sermon today. We're starting with the application. The story is given to them and it's given to us to remember. That's what you gotta take away today, is just to remember. In fact, maybe the most crucial spiritual discipline is remembering. And actually probably this thing called faith that we talk about all the time and we have trouble defining, probably most often what faith feels like is remembering. So when you're asking the question, am I gonna be okay? Does God really know what I'm going through? Where is God? Does he care? Is he doing anything? This story is here for you as it was for Israel to remember that God was at work all along. That when Israel least expected it, when the oppression of Israel was at its peak, they were enslaved in Egypt. And all the time when you thought God was nowhere present, there was a random man from the house of Levi and a random woman from the house of Levi that had a baby. And they had a baby at the moment in Israel's history when the Egyptian Pharaoh had ordered the execution of all Hebrew male infants. And two no account Hebrew women defied the Pharaoh. They didn't know what to do. They were scared. They knew that what Pharaoh had ordered was wrong. And they put the baby in the ark, in an ark. Actually, the term here used in Hebrew is ark, it's only used one other place in Scripture. 
It's used twice in the Bible, and it's actually here in this story to evoke the memory of another time that God delivered his people through an ark. But they put it in an ark, and he drifted, and an Egyptian princess found this newborn, had compassion, didn't know how to raise it, needed a wet nurse, and hired the baby's mother to raise him. And you know what the baby's name was? This is, again, this is Moses talking to Israelites who'd been through four centuries of slavery and 40 years in the desert. The baby who drifted in the river, who drifted in the arms of the only woman who could stand up to the Pharaoh, right? His daughter. And raise the Hebrew baby. That baby's name was Moses, the man who came and God used as his instrument to deliver them from slavery and bring them to the promised land. God was at work the whole time. And in point of fact, he's often doing his most significant work in the least likely places, at the least likely times, through the least likely means. He uses two no-account midwives, a lost Hebrew baby. And this story is here for Israel and for us to teach them about the shape of the faithfulness of this never forgetting his people, God. So that also when another deliverer shows up in the least likely way and in the lowliest manner, they would know we've seen that before. We know that's how God works. So this was written so that we can remember when it all feels lost, when it feels like God doesn't care and he isn't there and he isn't at work, the story exists so God people can look back and remember that the whole time God was working his plan of redemption to deliver his people. I, um, some of you know I have four daughters I have two 14-year-old daughters and two 16-year-old daughters, two sets of identical twins. And I remember the, the early days, where in some ways our days in the desert, um, the early days when we had two newborns and two infants. And our house was just filled with crying, right? I remember Elizabeth at one point, my wife frustrated, preparing to feed them, and hearing all four crying, she, say, she literally says, don't you remember, I've always fed you. I've never dropped the ball. I've been here the whole time, fed you every time you needed it. Don't you remember? Y'all, that's us. Forgetting all the time. In all of scripture, but especially this story, is here to remind us and remember that God has always been at work delivering his people. We might not always see it, but what God is asking us to do is to trust his character instead of trust what we see and can control. And that's what it means to live by faith instead of live by sight. To trust the goodness of God's character that he never forgets his people and he's always at work. And we are at our most angry and fearful and anxious when we can't look at God's character and the hundreds and stories of his faithfulness, but instead we fixate on our circumstances. And that's where our gaze is. That's when we're most anxious and fearful. And we start to embrace the idea that I'm only gonna be okay if I seize control of this moment. Right and take control of my story and give me my best life now. The chief sin in the garden, Adam and Eve, God made Adam and Eve and gave them incredible power. He said, have dominion over the earth and then make and care for more image bearers. But sin entered in the world when they took the power that God had given them 
and instead of using it towards those ends, actually stopped and thought, I don't think I'll be okay unless I use the power that God has given me to get what I want for me. That was the first sin. They stopped trusting the goodness of God and that always leads us to using our power to try and do for ourselves what only God can do, which is to preserve and protect us. How much of our imaginations and our energy and anxiety is about directing our time and our resources towards getting the life we want and need for our, and what, the life that we want and need for ourselves? What, what I'd invite kind of all of us to do right now is to be honest and confess that we all really believe that we're only going to be okay if I can use all of my power to get the life that I want for myself. And here's the thing, a lot of us have even gotten most of what we wanted, right? And it hasn't given us the peace we wanted. We've just moved on to another horizon dream life, right? So I did RUF at Stanford for a number of years and Stanford students, the first 18 years of their life was about crossing one finish line, that is admission to Stanford University. And they got it. They got there. They got the thing that they had worked toward for 18 years and it produced no peace. And actually because they believe it produced peace, when they got there, their anxiety ratcheted up even further. Right? Y'all, when we're, we're in that place that we're either angry or controlling or gossipy or manipulative or jealous or punitive, what that is, is that is the feeling of embracing the belief, I will not be okay in Jesus. I will only be okay if I use my power to get what I need and get the people that are obstacles to what I need out of my way. So when those things show up in our life, that's, what's, that's the belief underneath it driving them. And the story is here to tell us God has always been at work addressing the deepest and truest needs of his people. And we're always forgetting it because our deepest need is to have someone or something come and conquer the things over which none of us have any power, which is sin and death. Those are our ultimate enemies, Christian or not. We're not who we were supposed to be and we're O for billions against death. Those are our enemies. And all the other things, the, the it's raining at church, right? The I'm not married, this marriage is empty. My house is underwater. My children are not going the way they wanted. My roommate's driving me crazy. I don't, work is not working for me. All the other things that we're stressed about, those are symptoms of the fall. And we need to treat, Jesus has come to treat the disease itself. And when Jesus comes and treats the disease, when we let him address our truest and deepest needs, actually we begin to have the capacity to handle the symptoms. The disease is our sin and its greatest power, death. And when you know that your guilt and your insecurity and the unacceptability, all the things we don't like about ourselves that are wrong with us, when you find out that in this amazing gift called forgiveness, that those are no longer barriers to your union and enjoyment of the love of your creator for you. And that also you no longer have to fear what sin brought into the world, which is death. And he's given you his spirit and he's given you his word and he's given you this thing called his family to testify to your soul what you have. Here's what you have at that moment. You have everything. 
If your house is underwater, you have everything. When Israel was in slavery, God was at work in the least likely way all along in the life of a baby, always in control, always working his plan for their salvation. And Moses is telling the Israelites, remember, remember at the cross, Jesus conquered sin. And today is Sunday, it's not the Hebrew Sabbath. You know why we've gathered today and not on the Hebrew Sabbath as New Testament Christians? It's resurrection day. The main thing we're doing right now is celebrating our savior who conquered death. And so what that means now is you are free. The slavery that actually we're enslaved to is believing that you have to use all of your resources on yourself to give yourself your dream life, which as an aside, that spiritual condition of slavery is actually what creates all real world slavery and oppression. Our dream life, it is a farce, it is temporary. It never gives us the peace that we hoped it would give us because it has no power over our true enemies, which are sin and death. So freedom comes. The freedom of God that he offers is the freedom from the fear that you will not be okay. The most common command given in scripture is do not fear. If you wanna know, well, how, how can I stop being afraid? Remember that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Now it brings us to the second question. So you're saying I'm gonna be okay in Jesus. What do I do? Right? It's not cause for complacency. In fact, it's the opposite. It means you move ahead with God's will for your life, even if you can't see how it's going to work out. God is at work. That doesn't mean that you give up seeking and follow, trying to follow after God's will for your life and you resign yourself to some mystical power that's just gonna do things for you that you don't understand. You actually don't give up your agency. It's actually a promise that your agency is and will be meaningful as you seek God's will for your life. What we have in this passage is two women who embrace God's will for their lives because the question every Christian is confronted with at some point is will I be okay if I follow God's will for my life? So what am I supposed to do? What is that second question? Often answered in short terms, what is God's, or often asked another way, what is God's will for my life? If you talk to any pastor, especially a college minister, one of the most frightening phrases they hear from students at some point is, God told me. Because usually that phrase is used around the quest of discerning what is God's will for my life. The subtext of that quest and that question is, what do I need to do to make sure I get God's best for me? Which is a great question. But usually the way we answer that question is this national treasure style game of combining and interpreting clues and signs in our life until you interpret it to mean I'm supposed to move to Dallas, right? Or I'm supposed to leave my job or I'm supposed to buy a silver Camry instead of a blue Accord. And if you don't find the signs and interpret the clues or dial in the radio just right to get the signal, you're gonna miss God's best for you. I have good news. The Bible has good news for us today about his will for your life. 
But before we talk about that good news, I want us to acknowledge for a second the underlying assumptions of the God's will for my life, treasure hunt style of thinking about it. First of all, the Bible never teaches that. But secondly, it assumes some things about God's character that are kind of frightening. Namely, that notion assumes that he's the kind of father that wants to make it pretty difficult and non-obvious of what his children need to know and do to be happy. It assumes that he's hidden the path to happiness for the children that he loves and he's intentionally made it opaque and unclear about what he wants you to do. Do you know any good parent that parents that way? I'm gonna hide and obscure clues for them that they've gotta discern before I'll give them my best for them. Does that sound like good fathering to you? Does that sound like the God who thundered from Mount Sinai the 10 things he wanted his people to do? He was kind of obvious right there, wasn't he? When he gets really serious about what he wants us to do. So here's the good news, God is obvious. And it's actually our distrust in his character and our incredulity towards his, empty, his redemptive plan that prevents us from seeing how obvious his will for our life is. And if, if you're a Christian who's sometimes confused and found yourself kind of wound up in that quest for what does God want me to do, do this and you'll learn a lot really quickly. Read the Bible with a non-Christian, someone who doesn't believe or hasn't read it before and say, I'm trying to ask them this question. Say, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. Will you read this and tell me if you think he's been clear about what he wants me to do? I guarantee you they'll tell you, it's really obvious what he wants you to do. Here's a summary. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 from Paul. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. That just means obedience to his law of love. What's remarkable about this story is how unremarkable what these two women did. All they did was act with God-honoring character. They feared God instead of man. They preserved the life of a child, even under the threat of an evil Pharaoh. And that's all they did. And God was at work. God's will for your life is his law of love. So God's been obvious. Here's what he wants you to do. Love God and love your neighbor. Do not murder. Honor your parents. Do not covet. Seek the well-being of the fatherless and the widow. Pray for your government officials. Give, without grum give generously without grumbling. Welcome strangers. Forgive. Love your enemies. Seek things like love and joy and peace and kindness and so on. Be faithful in your marriages. Confess sin. God has been really clear about his will for our lives. These two women, Miriam and Jochebed, we learn their names in Exodus 6, 6. They did nothing but simple obedience. That's all they did. That was all that was required of them. They protected the life of a child because it was right. And they didn't fear Pharaoh, they honored God instead. Micah 6, 8, another place you can look. God has shown you, O oh man, what he asks of you, what he requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. God's will for your life is obvious. Now, here's what you get to do. You get to rest in the freedom 
from the anxious quest of finding the will of a clue hiding God. You don't have to do that anymore. There's freedom. God did a mighty work in the nation of Israel, raised up the leader who would lead them out of exile, not by hiding a bunch of clues and a bunch of decisions that they would have to find and interpret in order to enact some elaborate scheme. They just protected the life of an innocent. That's all that was asked of them. We, we really are fixated a lot of times on God trying to speak to unimportant details and decisions in our life when all along he's been very obvious about the things of central importance. And it doesn't matter and it won't contribute to our happiness if we actually think, okay, I've got to figure out if I'm supposed to be a barista or a lawyer. If you think you're supposed to live in Atlanta, but ended up in Nashville. Because here's the thing is, if you have a heart filled up by the love of your creator, assured of resurrection hope that you have in Jesus and you love your neighbor in the same manner that God has loved you, you can be happy anywhere because that's the good stuff, y'all. So what, if, what would happen if in the church, we all live faithfully devoted to our spouses, sought our, to serve and love our difficult roommates with unconditional love, if we honored our bosses, if we forgave our parents and forgave our children, if we offered hospitality to any stranger we encountered, if we were kind to our enemies, if we refused to be divisive, if we were charitable towards our opponents, if we sought at all costs to live at peace with one another, if we never envied, if we cared for orphan and widows, and also by God's law, one day every week, stopped obsessing about work, rested, worshiped, and partied together. God prescribed more party days in the Old Testament than any fraternity has ever put on their calendar. Do you know that? You wanna talk about a church that would love people, places, and things to life? That kind of church would be mind-blowing. Feel rest in this, God's will for your life is obvious. Here's the hard thing, it's difficult though. Right, these two women had to defy Pharaoh. It's a terrifying moment. We've been there. We're more worried about what man can do to us than we cared about honoring God. It's scary. You try, if you try really hard to follow God's will for your life, what you'll find very quickly is we're not very good at it. C.S. Lewis said it this way, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. So what'll happen is pretty quickly you'll come to the end of yourself. And you know what happens when you come to the end of yourself trying to follow God's will? You run back to Jesus for mercy and grace, right? You see, in God's wisdom, his will for your life, which is love and obedience to his moral law, actually drives you back to him, seeking grace for him, growing in gratitude. And when you seek justice, when you seek to do the right thing, Micah 6, 8, you end up loving mercy because you realize how badly you need it and how freely he gives it, which ends up in walking humbly. The joy of being in God's will doesn't come by solving a puzzle so that you can secure some temporary set of circumstances for yourself. The joy of being God's will. It feels like this is a really important point, right? And like, I don't know what's going on. We're gonna be okay. And I know what I should do. 
the joy of being in God's will. This is so awkward. I don't know if Stacy's inviting me back. I don't know. Maybe I did do it wrong. We'll see. The joy of being in God's will is not figuring out the circumstances and logistics of your life. The joy of being in God's will is being in his love and sharing his love with your neighbor. That's the good stuff. I was at Stanford doing REF for seven years and I started my first large group every fall by just reminding them of one truth and asking them to be bothered by it. I started every RUF, first RUF, and I said, you're at Stanford, it's amazing. You have the capacity to do incredible things and you're all ambitious people. But just remember this and let this unsettle you. There are people in the world who don't have and will never have what you're after. Whatever it was they were after, the achievement, the success, the health, the comfort, the approval of man, whatever it is. I was like, y'all are probably gonna get it, but just know this, there are people in the world that have never had that, the height of achievement that you think is necessary and never will have it and are happy. And you've got to deal with that. This story is here to tell us, remember, will you be okay? What should you do? Remember, God has not only never forgotten his people, but he's always been at work. So read scripture to remember that in Jesus, your true enemies have been conquered. And he gives this gift to you freely by his grace to anybody who comes to him. And if you're wondering, well, then what does that mean? What does he want me to do? He's always been obvious. Enjoy loving him and love your neighbor in the same way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this rain. You're the God that brings together all the elements of life, but not just the plant life you're feeding now, but the resurrection life we need in Jesus. I pray that that would be our rest. We will be okay. Help us to believe that. In your name we pray, amen.